Oh, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we thank you for it, and we remember that it is useful, that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray for these things to be accomplished in our hearts, in our lives this morning. And we pray that as we look at this passage today, that we would see where your heart is, that we would see what stirs your heart, and that we would see what stirs our hearts, and that you would use this time, that you would use this passage to grow us in Christ's likeness for his glory. Amen. Well, first Sunday of the month is always my personal favorite Sunday. I, I, I love preaching the parables, and so I invite you today to turn with me to the 15th chapter in the book of Luke as we'll be continuing our study of the parables of Christ. And if you'll remember, this is actually the third consecutive lesson that we've had in a row, you know, consecutive in a row, of course. Um, I'm not being redundant or anything, but this is our third uh, parable that we've looked at from this chapter. And we're going to be looking at the third one today, the, the last one that he teaches in this chapter. And this is a parable that most people are familiar with, even people who have never cracked open their Bibles, maybe even people who have, have never stepped foot into a church. They're familiar with the parable that we'll be looking at today. It's commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, but I would say that that is a little bit of a misnomer, and let me explain why I say that. I call it the prodigal father, because the point of this parable is not to turn our attention to the son in the story, but it's to take a look at the father. It's to show us something about the father. The father is really supposed to be the central figure of this story. And further, the word prodigal, we often take it to mean uh, somebody who goes astray or somebody who is just kind of going off doing their own thing. No, the word prodigal doesn't refer to somebody who's gone astray. If you look it up in the dictionary, the word prodigal actually means extravagant or excessive. And while we, you know, we can probably say that about the way that the son lives when he leaves home and goes to a distant country, I would say that we can say that even more of the love and the grace and the compassion and the patience of the Father. So let's call this parable the parable of the prodigal father since he's the one who's excessive and extravagant with his love. And that's who this parable is really all about anyway. So how do we know that he's the one that it's about? Well, because, spoiler alert, he represents God in this, uh, in this parable. He's a picture, an illustration of God. He illustrates something about God that we're supposed to see. And how do we know that we're supposed to see something about God in this parable? Well, if you consider the context, uh, this entire chapter has a common theme. That being, what brings God joy? You remember why Jesus started talking about things. Uh, that, that bring God joy in the first place, 
If you look back to the beginning of the chapter, he was scorned by the Pharisees and the religious leaders for associating with, for, for eating with, for, for, for loving sinners and tax collectors. And in their minds, that was something that no rabbi who's, who's worth his weight in, in anything would be doing. Because God loves righteous people. God doesn't love sinners in their minds. This is how they thought. And so they thought that you know, if there were a hierarchy of people that God loves, they would be at the top, and those are the people that a, a rabbi would want to be spending time with because that's who they wanted to spend time with. And they were rabbis. But Jesus associated with and loved to be with sinners. We saw back in verses 1 and 2 that as these tax collectors and other various sinners were drawing close to Jesus, the response of the Pharisees was angst. It was to grumble against Jesus. Look at verse 2. They said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And we should remember that in their culture, if you were going to eat with somebody, especially going to their house, to eat with them, it was a sign that you were affirming them. It was a sign that you were accepting them. And in the Pharisees' minds, again, no self-respecting rabbi would do such a thing. Not with a sinner, and definitely not with a tax collector. Remember, tax collectors were looked at as traitors since they were collecting taxes from their own people on behalf of the Roman Empire. So the hearts of the Pharisees were really just so far away from God. And they were completely blind to the fact that their hearts were distant from God, that their hearts were cold when it came to the things that God loves. They had no idea that the things that gave them joy didn't move God's heart, and that the things that gave God joy, they hated. They hated. And Jesus wants them to see that. That's the purpose of these three parables in the book of Luke, including the one that we're looking at today. And what, when you, when you consider you know, the, the way that he gently illustrates the Father's heart here to the Pharisees, you have to see what a loving and compassionate and merciful Savior our Lord is. He shows them how far away their hearts are from God. He shows them that their hearts are so cold and he did it just by telling parables. And these weren't parables that were designed to conceal truth. Some parables were designed to conceal truth. No, these parables were designed to reveal truth to these people who hated the things that God loved. These people who were unregenerate, self-righteous, stiff-necked, hard-hearted religious leaders. So we saw that at the beginning of the chapter, the first parable that Jesus taught was the parable of the lost sheep. And the story goes something like this. The sheep gets lost, the sheep is sought, the sheep is found, and the sheep is restored. And then the shepherd goes back and he rejoices. And Jesus concluded the parable, if you remember, back in verse 7. He said, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And of course, the message there that Jesus is, is giving them is that God has more joy over these people that I'm associating with, these sinners, these tax collectors, than he is with you guys, the Pharisees. 
He moves on to the second parable, the parable of the lost coin. And the storyline is almost completely identical to the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. The coin is lost, the coin is sought, the coin is found, the coin is secured, and the woman rejoices. And Jesus concludes by saying something similar to what he said after the first parable. He said, this time, he says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now this third parable is actually very different. The first two were, were, were very similar, very similar storyline, very similar structure. The third one is very different. It doesn't follow the same storyline at all. In the first two parables, the characters, which were an illustration of God, were searching for what was lost. But that's not what happens in the parable of the prodigal father, as you probably know. And if you don't, well, now you do. So we're going to talk about the significance of this difference as we go along. Now before we start, there's one more thing that we need to be mindful about uh, when it comes to first century Israel, because we want to come as close as we can in our, in our culture, given, given our uh, cultural view, our worldview, we want to get as close as we can to seeing it and understanding it the same way that the original audience would have understood it. That's always the goal when you're reading your Bible. And so with that said, we have to understand that much like many Asian cultures today, the culture of first century Israel was really viewed through a shame and honor paradigm. A shame and honor paradigm. Things that you did were like, like we consider the, the you know, the, the, uh, the weights, right? Which one is heavy? Which one goes up? Which one goes down? In, in their culture, it was shame and honor. Not necessarily good and bad in that sense, but shame and honor. You want to do things that, that bring you honor. You want to avoid things that bring you shame. Likewise, it was good to, to bring honor to yourself or to somebody who was deserving of it, and it was okay to shame somebody who had earned it, who deserved it. So, you know, in our day and age, you know, we're, we're, we're similar. We live by kind of a similar paradigm, although less and less so, because these days you get to determine what's good for yourself, and nobody else does, uh, and everybody does what's right in their own eyes rather than living by the Word of God. But these things don't define our uh, people in our day and age like they did in first century Israel. So we, we want to understand that. But at the same time, I hope you recognize the fatal flaw with that paradigm, with living by a system like that. It's based on external performance. So wh- why do you think the Pharisees were so flawless and so extravagant externally? You know, they wore their, their long robes. They insisted on being seated in, in the seat of honor when they went to community meals. Why? Because they wanted, and and they felt like they were worthy of, honor. They wanted honor. And to give them less than that kind of honor in their paradigm, in their view, was shameful. So, as we begin looking at this parable, we need to understand that it begins immediately with what is really a very shameful request. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. It says, and he said, that's Jesus, and and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And I would say that, you know, in our day and age, we may miss exactly how vile and how repulsive 
this request is. We have something of an entitlement complex in our culture today, and so we may miss how shameful the request of the younger son really is. So, so the father in this story has, has two sons. The, the younger one is the one who makes this shameful request. He says, Father, and by the way, don't be deceived by how respectful that might seem on the surface. He says, Father, I, I want my share of your estate, and I want it now. And this is just a terribly disrespectful, dishonoring request. It's like telling his father, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want the things that you have that are going to be mine. Now, most of us wouldn't say that to our parents. In fact, I think it's hard to imagine a child being so disrespectful, so, so hurtful, so uncaring toward their own father. Even if you don't like them, it's hard to imagine somebody being this disrespectful, but that's part of the point of the story. So we should see that he doesn't care about his father's honor. He doesn't care that he said something shameful and made a shameful request to his father. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about honor, apparently, and so it doesn't bother him that he's clearly broken at least one of the Ten Commandments. And I'd say whenever you break one, you, you, you break another one. You also break the first. Every time you sin, you break the first commandment, which was to have no other gods before God. And so he's done that, but he's also dishonored his mother and father. It doesn't mean, by the way, when, when the Bible says, you know, you shall honor your mother and father, that doesn't mean that you're always going to agree with them. It doesn't even mean you're always going to like them. It certainly doesn't mean that, you know, there's never a place for you to correct their, their wrong thinking. You know, it, it, there's a time and place to do that. I, I would say this, it, it should be done with as much grace and as much privacy as you possibly can if you ever need to correct your parents. But wishing for your parents to be dead, I think we can all agree, that's not honoring at all. That's not honoring either, either God or your parents. Never mind how much more of a failure it is to tell them that you wish they were dead, as the younger son has done here. But there's a second problem with this request. He's the younger son. He's the younger son. So, so the majority of, of the inheritance, the majority of the estate isn't his. It's his older brother's. The first share goes to, to the older brother. So by taking away his portion, he's also diminishing the potential value uh, of his brother's share of the estate. He's, he's diminishing the, the growth potential of his brother's share of the estate. But this younger brother doesn't care about his father. He doesn't care about his brother. And I would say not only does he disrespect his father, he hates his father. He hates his father. This, this request is so outrageous. The only way that you could possibly say this to anybody is if you absolutely hated their guts. See, this kind of thing didn't happen in ancient Israel because it would bring such scorn such a thing would have brought an immediate and a very strong response, not only from the family, but from the community. The younger child probably would have been sent away from the whole community with absolutely nothing because the community would have come together to protect the honor of the father. And the younger son probably would have died in the wild. But rather than punishing his son, 
But his father does something that a first century Jew would never have even considered, would never have even expected. The father accommodated this request. He cooperates. He he goes along with what the son has requested, this shameful request. And nobody in first century Israel would have done this because they're looking to preserve their honor and they're looking to avoid shame. So the father actually to an extent, at least from from society's perspective, from the way the Jews in the first century would have seen this, the father shames himself by yielding to the demands of the younger son. And you might say, well, maybe, maybe this father just really, really loved the younger son. And I don't think there's any question about that. I I would say, of course, he loved his, his son. And yet, every parent knows that Perhaps the least loving thing you can do is fail to practice tough love sometimes. You know, say your, your kid wants to eat all their, their Halloween candy before bedtime. What do you say? Go for it, you know, I, I'm, I'm here all night, so go ahead and eat all your candy now. You know, you're never going to get to sleep. No, what do you say? You say, here's one piece. Or, or, or maybe, you know, have, have two pieces before bed and, and you can have a few more tomorrow and we'll just kind of, you know, space this out. When your kids throw a temper tantrum about being fed broccoli for dinner, you don't say, okay, fine, let's have chocolate cake instead. Because you're teaching them something. You, you realize that if you are yielding to their demands, they're going to learn to run the show. The, the inmates are going to be running the prison, so to speak. You, you'd be teaching your children to have the wrong attitude toward life and toward authority figures. But the father gives the younger son exactly what he wants. And we need to understand why. We need to understand what this represents. This is a picture of God handing the sinner over to their sin. Romans 1. God hands a sinner over to their sin because they love the sin more than they love God. And God says, fine, you can have as much of that sin as you want. And He hands them over. And that's what the Father does here. Notice, by the way, that the the older brother is quiet at this point. He, he doesn't intervene. And you would expect that because he's got a vested interest in this, that he, w- he would say something. But he doesn't say anything. And, and that tells us that there's something going on between him and his father too. Because he should be taking a stand for his father's honor. But he doesn't. Because he doesn't love his father either. And we'll get to that before we're done. So the father goes along with the plan. He divides the inheritance. And the way that this was done in first century Israel was if you had two sons, the older would get two-thirds, the younger would get one-third. So he, he divides it up. But even that, even, even after getting his share of the estate, it's not enough for the younger son. He, he's not done showing dishonor and disrespect to his father. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Jesus continues. He says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So we need to understand that it wasn't wasn't enough. He, he, He got his share of the estate, and that wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough to satisfy him or to soften his heart toward his father. 
No, Jesus says that it was not many days after that. A couple days later, he packs his bags and he hits the road. See, he didn't just love his wealth. He didn't just love all the, the stuff that he had gotten from his father's estate. He loved his wealth, but he also hated his father. He didn't even want to be in the presence of his father. He didn't even want to be in the same roof as his father. He didn't even want to be in the same country as his father. And so he goes to a faraway country. He wants to get as far away from his father as he possibly can. And he's not just getting as far away from his father as he possibly can. He's also getting as far away from accountability as he possibly can. He's also getting as far away from right living as he possibly can. He's also getting far enough away that nobody he knew and nobody who cared one bit about him while he lived in his father's house would be able to criticize him or rebuke him for the choices that he's made or the dishonor that he's brought to himself or the dishonor that he's brought to his entire family. And here's where we see the foolishness of the love of money. It doesn't bring true, lasting satisfaction. The implication is that this father had a very sizable estate. So this, this younger brother is going off with a lot of money. He goes out. He lives it up with extravagant and luxurious living. And we recognize as, as the readers, as the people who, who are reading this story, we, we understand that this is just nothing short of foolishness. Now, as someone who spent several years in the casino industry early in my life, I may have an enriched perspective on the illusion that money will bring people happiness. But tr so, trust me on this, I could tell you all kinds of crazy stories about people who win enormous sums of money and they are absolutely miserable. But more importantly than, than believing me or trusting me, trust what Scripture says about it. You know, Jesus says you can't serve God and money, right? Psalm 52.7 says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Proverbs 11.28, whoever trusts in his riches will fail, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. I mean, we could go you know, right down the list and we could spend all day looking at what the Bible says about the foolishness of loving money. It's foolish to put your hope for happiness in riches. And yet that's exactly what this son does. He thinks getting this money and getting away from his father are going to make everything okay. And before long, not surprising, we know the story, the proverbial well runs dry. He's broke, and the people who had maybe pretended to be his friends while he was living it up with all kinds of money, now they're nowhere to be seen. Now they're of no help to him. Who steps in to help him when the well runs dry? Nobody. Nobody. And so when this severe famine starts to arise, he's out of money. He's out. He's, he's broke. He's, he's out of money. He's out of hope. And he's just about out of options. What's life like at the bottom of the barrel? This. This is life at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, there are plenty of stories out there of what 
One could uh, one would eat during times of famine, and I, I would tell you all about them, but I don't want you to lose your appetite in time for lunch. Uh, suffice to say, the younger son is in a desperate, desperate situation, and there aren't a lot of things that he can do here. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So things go from bad to worse. It says he, he, he hires himself out. He, the, the Greek word really means attached himself to. If you have ever been to an impoverished country, people will attach themselves to you as you walk down the street. You'll have kids clinging to your pant legs. You'll have people begging you, just walking right in front of you backwards, in your face, begging you for change, for anything. And so that's the image here. He attaches himself to somebody and they say, okay, well, you know, you can feed my pigs. He hires himself out to feed these pigs. And the visual I get is, is probably, at least to an extent, shaped by watching Looney Tunes cartoons as a kid. I imagine that everything he looked at, including the food that he was giving to these pigs, uh, he, he was hallucinating like it was a, a nice, thick, steaming, hot slab of filet mignon with a, with a side of you know, twice-baked potatoes on the side. And that's really what it would have been like, I think, for people who were in severe famines at the time. Everything that they looked at looked like food. One of the crazier but cleaner things that people were reported to have eaten in ancient famines was their sandals. Their sandals. Now, I have never personally tried this. I've never tried eating a sandal, but I would imagine that that's pretty sure, you know, that, that's got to be something that even some A1 steak sauce can't fix. <laughs> People resort to desperate things in desperate times. And as hungry as he is and as desperate as he is, he's hopeless. Nobody's helping him out. Nobody's there to take care of him. Nobody's feeding him. Pigs got to eat better than he did. And of course, in ancient Jewish culture, pigs were, you know, you don't touch those. They're the filthiest of the unclean animals. The idea here then is that the younger son is lower than even a pig, even the lowest of the animals in the eyes of the people in the country he's gone to live among. Now, we'd all agree that these circumstances are are horrible. They're bad. I mean, who could deny that that the younger son here has hit rock bottom. He's at the bottom of the barrel. But rock bottom can be a very, very good place. It can be a very good place because that's where we reach the end of our narcissistic tendency to trust in our own understanding of things. Being at the bottom of the barrel gives you a clear perspective if you're just willing to look up. And I'm absolutely sure that if, if all of us were to come up here and share our testimony today, at least some of us would be able to testify to the fact that when we became Christians, when we were converted, when God found us, we were at rock bottom. I know I can say that of myself. I know that a couple of you can say that of yourselves as well. That's the beauty of being at rock bottom. 
So the younger son hits rock bottom. And that's where he finally comes to his senses. Let's look at verses 17 to 19. It says, but then, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So this is obviously where the story takes a drastic turn. The son has gone from, from hating his father to wishing that he had what even his father's servants or, or slaves had. He's brought shame to himself. He's brought shame to his father. He's brought shame to his brother. He has no honor remaining. What's, what's happened to him? He's been humbled. He's been humbled. And what a great gift that is. That is a gift from God when life humbles you. It is a wonderful and and beautiful and good thing to be humbled by life's circumstances because it forces you to see things with a clear perspective that isn't convoluted by pride. Foolish, foolish pride. Now we've seen that there are some very significant differences between this parable and the parables earlier in the chapter, the the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. So I want to talk about these differences, but but first let's talk about what's common between all three of them. See, in all three of these parables, there's at least one thing that we can say about the object that's lost, whether it's a sheep or a coin or a son, and that is that it is valuable to the person who lost it. It is valuable to the person who lost it. Now, you, you might be able to imagine that, that a sheep that, that's wandered astray would be terrified. You, you can imagine a sheep going out into the darkness and just being, being terrified and miserable apart from the shepherd and then relieved to be found. We can kind of personify an animal to that extent. It's a little harder to personify a coin Uh, having feelings. But we can probably imagine that this younger son also felt very frightened and that he was miserable, not being apart from the shepherd like the sheep would have been, but apart from whom? Apart from the father. And so in a sense, these parables remind us, they, they illustrate for us how miserable we are apart from God. If you have had a time in your life where you've come to your senses and you realized how completely and utterly miserable your life is being apart from God, the first thing that you need to understand is that that's when you start to realize that you have some value to God. That you are valuable to God. The prophet Isaiah likened sinners to sheep that had gone astray. He writes, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And yet God sought us out in our condition. That's what what Jesus came to do. And Isaiah would, would go on to write of Jesus. He said, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The doctrine of imputation. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And that's what Jesus came to do. And why did he do this? He did it to reconcile sinners to a holy God because all have gone astray. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had failed to understand. They didn't realize that that all included them. That they had gone astray. That they weren't close to God. And they needed to be reconciled. They needed to be restored to God by the Messiah. By the one of whom Isaiah wrote. Now the most obvious difference between this parable and the previous parables is that the Father, who represents God, obviously, doesn't go out and search for His Son. And so many people have isolated this parable, not not reading it in light of the, the previous two parables, they've isolated this parable so that they can support the idea, or, or they come up with the idea, that God's hands are tied when it comes to salvation, and that the power unto salvation lies entirely on the choice of the sinner to freely choose to come home to God. The reality is, however, we have to see all three of these parables in light of each other. The the three parables that we find in Luke chapter 15, they give us a full understanding of salvation. Because all three parables are, are teaching the same thing, but they have different aspects of salvation that they are trying to draw out, that they're trying to, to shine light on, that they're trying to, to emphasize. The first two emphasize the fact that it is God and God alone who takes the initiative in seeking the lost. And it is completely true to say that if you are a Christian, it's because God has chosen you from eternity and you have been sought and found by God whose purposes never fail. But it's also true to say with that that you repented and you came to God. So this third parable emphasizes the responsibility that the sinner has to repent, to turn from sin, and to come to God. But we must understand that God seeking and the sinner repenting are actually two sides of the exact same coin. Where you have one, you always have the other. You know, we, we, we preach, we, we believe, we proclaim that, uh, you know, that man needs to repent and believe in Christ, but we also understand that God must regenerate the sinner. That God must regenerate the sinner through the preaching of the Gospel. Nobody repents without God seeking them first and finding them. And God doesn't seek without the sinner coming to repentance. Two sides of the same coin. Two things inevitably bound together. And let's remember that the the repentance of the sinner is what's really in view in all three of these parables. You know, the, the first two, yeah, it's about God seeking, right? God seeking the lost. But... Verse 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, he says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it's both. It's not both and. It's not either or. It's, it's both and. So God seeking the sinner and the sinner repenting are two things that are bound together, that go together. The way it often works is the way 
that it works in this parable. The sinner suddenly, kind of out of nowhere, comes to their senses. They decide not to just, not to just return to the Father but to humble themselves before the Father. Look at what the, the Son says. He doesn't just say, you know, I'm, I'm heading home. You know what? It's, it's awful over here. I hate it over here. This country is no good. I'm just going to go home. That's not His plan. No, He says, I'm going to go home and I'm just I'm going to humble myself before my Father because I have brought shame to Him. I have sinned against Him. And I'm going to admit it to Him. I, I'm, I'm going to confess it to Him. And I'm just going to hope that he would just take me in as one of his slaves. One of the greatest consequences of sin is that a person in their sin comes under the delusion that they are perfectly happy apart from God. When the truth is, if you look at their lives, they're absolutely miserable but they're pursuing something other than God. And, they, and, and sin is so deceptive and so strong, they actually convince themselves that they're happy. You ever see that in somebody? Can you look back on your life and say that that was true of you at one time in your life? I know I can. Sin is strong enough and it's deceptive enough to convince someone that they would be happier living in sin than they would be by humbling themselves before God and submitting themselves in obedience to Him. So the first indication that God has sought and found a person is usually that they they start to recognize their misery apart from God for what it is. It's like they've spent their lives blind and suddenly they can see. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right? If, if those, those who don't believe the gospel, they're, they're perishing, they're blinded by the devil. And so, it's like they've spent their lives believing the devil's lie. That sin is just inconsequential. That sin is going to bring them more happiness than obedience unto God. And suddenly their eyes are opened to what a bold-faced lie that really is. That is grace. That is grace when you come to that point and you realize that you've been utterly miserable all this time you thought you were happy and that's what the younger son realizes as he finally comes to his senses he sees the way he's shamed himself he sees the way that he's shamed his father he realizes that he's not worthy not deserving of anything at all and he realizes that he's only got one hope And that is to throw himself entirely upon the mercy of his Father. So the first step toward salvation is that he comes to his senses. The second step is that he's going to be honest about his sin. He's going to openly and honestly confess his sin. I mean, he could have made all kinds of excuses like people do about their sin all the time. He could have said, hey, you know, my my father will understand that I was young and foolish, but, you know, I've, I've learned my lesson now. He could have said, you know, had to go out and sow my wild oats. You know, I'm, I'm young. And he, he was a young man at one time too, so he'll understand. He could have said, you know, hey dad, I'm a product of my environment here, so, uh, so take me back in. No, he doesn't say any of those things. He could have made excuses, but he doesn't. He's honest about it. And it's very important for somebody to be honest about their sin. 
The third step is what we see next. Let's look at verses 20 to 24. It says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now it is, of course, very important to have intellect, to have a right understanding of what somebody has to do to be restored unto God. But what you have up here, what you think, what you understand in and of itself is not enough. Planning to humble yourself and planning to confess your sin to God, those are good things. But don't stop there. Act on it. Do it. Follow through on that plan. Humble yourself before the Lord. Confess your sin openly and honestly between yourself and the Lord, remembering the promise that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to forgive us. That's a promise. That's His promise to every sinner who will repent and confess their sin. And we can't miss the beauty of this exchange. This is such a heartwarming moment in the story. I think this is, this is actually the reason people love this story. The son plans to go back and grovel. He plans to go back and humble himself and confess. But it's almost like the father knows he's coming. The father, before, before the son even arrives, before the son can say anything, the father already is moved with compassion for his son. He runs out to him and he, he embraces him. You can, you can imagine tears of joy running down his face. And it's almost like the, the son is just, he's so shocked that this is the response from his dad. You know, as, as he pictured this, this playing out in his mind, I'm sure that he did not imagine this happening. And so it's almost like he, he's so shocked at the prodigal, excessive love and grace and compassion of the Father, that he's not exactly sure how to respond to it. And so you can kind of picture, you know, he's like, hey, Dad, back off for just a second. I got something to say here. You know, he backs out of the embrace and tries to follow through on his plan of what he was going to say. He confesses his sin and he admits that he sinned against his Father, that he's shamed his Father. And thus he no longer deserves even the title of son. But the Father cuts him off. The father interrupts him before he can finish his little spiel that he had planned out all along. He doesn't even give his son a chance to ask to be treated like a slave or a servant. Instead, he calls his other slaves, his other servants, bring a robe, bring the ring, bring shoes for my son. And what this represents is complete forgiveness. Complete, unconditional restoration to fellowship with the father he's treating his son as if his son never did anything wrong against him and the father is so overwhelmed with joy he's ready to throw a feast to celebrate kill the fatted calf i mean there's a couple hundred pounds of of meat 
These people didn't eat meat every single meal. You know, they were saved for, for, for feasts. And he's ready to, to throw a, a party for the whole town. And what this reminds us of is that God loves saving sinners. God rejoices in being a Savior unto sinners. He loves to save sinners. He loves to pour out His grace and mercy and compassion upon sinners. He loves to forgive those who will humble themselves and repent of and confess their sin before Him. It also reminds us that sorrow, the sorrow that this this son had in this far off land, that sorrow can be such a deep and rich blessing. As the Puritan author John Bunyan once said, he said, quote, Be not afraid of a broken heart. Be not shy of a contrite spirit. It is one of the greatest mercies that God bestows upon a man or a woman. End quote. So there's a party going on. There's a celebration over this son repenting, confessing. But not everybody is celebrating. Let's look at verses 25 to 32. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the one parable out of the three parables in this chapter where the Pharisees are actually represented. In this case, the Pharisees are the older brother. The older brother doesn't have the father's joy, right? And the point is that the Pharisees don't have God's joy. So they're the older brother. They hated that the Lord associated with sinners. They hated that the Lord loved sinners. Their hearts didn't celebrate over the things that God's heart celebrates over. So the older brother comes up to the house and he hears that there's a celebration going in. He asks a servant, what's going on in there? He says, hey, your brother's back. Let's celebrate. And so he stays outside in the darkness because he hates his brother. He hates his brother. Not only does he hate his brother, he hates his father. And he shames his father by staying out in the darkness instead of coming into the, the celebration. I mean, you can imagine that there's this, this huge celebration going on, and at some point, the father says, hey, where, where's, um, where's my older son? And his servant said, I, I told him, you know, that, the, the, that your younger son has returned, and he was mad. He, he's, he stayed outside. And so the father, in the middle of this celebration, says, excuse me, I, I have to go. 
And he gets up and he leaves the celebration to go outside to try to reason with his older son. And honestly, it's, it's kind of easy for us to sympathize at least a little bit with the older brother, isn't it? I, I know it is for me. I, you know, I, I, I can kind of relate in a sense. In a way, I suppose, you know, we've all had unjust things done to us. We've all had somebody take what wasn't theirs and, you know, really should have been, been ours. It seems unfair that this younger brother who brought such shame to the family would be welcomed back and restored so openly, so completely, so, so freely. But I also understand that the more I side with this older brother, the less in tune with God's heart my heart is. The truth is, the Father has the sovereign right to celebrate. He has the sovereign right to take joy in His Son coming back. See, if there's something that brings God joy, and it doesn't bring me joy, that isn't God's problem. That's my problem. If there's something that I love, that God hates, that's not God's problem. That's my problem. And conversely, if there's something that I hate that God loves, I need to repent. The older brother here needs to repent. So if you're a child of disobedience, if you are, have been wandering astray and, and you realize that you are absolutely miserable apart from God, th- this parable is for you. Come to your senses. Turn from your sin. Quit pursuing a sin above righteousness, above holiness. See your sin for what it is. See it for the lie that it is. Openly and honestly confess it before God, understanding that that's your only hope. Your only hope is to throw yourself upon the mercy of God. So come to Christ where you'll find that He is already waiting for you. That He has already come for you. He's ready to forgive you if you will just turn from your sin. But know that until you turn from your sin, until you return from this faraway country, you are still off in that distant land. This parable instructs you. It instructs you to leave that place. To not just think about leaving it, but to leave that place to come back humbly to the place of forgiveness. So if you're a child of disobedience, this parable is for you. But if you're not, if you are in Christ, this parable is for you too. It's also for those of us who, who are in Christ. It forces us to ask ourselves if we find supreme joy in the salvation of sinners. Do you find joy? Do you find great, great joy in seeing God save sinners? Do you remember what it was like once upon a time to walk in their shoes? Do you remember what it was like to be absolutely miserable and yet convinced that you were happy with sin? Is your heart in tune with God's heart? That's the big question, isn't it? 
That is the ultimate question. Is your heart in tune with God's heart? Not just with this. Not just with the salvation of sinners. But with everything. With absolutely everything. Because the Christian life is a journey in which we're learning progressively, step by step, by the grace of God, to align our hearts, to align our values, to align our desires with God's. So this parable, for those of us who are in Christ, this parable is a plea for us to not be like the older brother, but to find joy in the things that give God joy. And saving sinners gives God great, great joy. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this passage, for this set of three parables, perhaps especially for the last one because we can see ourselves in it. And we thank you that you take great joy in saving sinners. Because if you didn't, every single one of us would still be in that distant land. Every single one of us would still be your enemy. And we thank you that it's by grace that we came to our senses, that we saw our sin for what it was, for the lie that it was, And we thank you for the compassion and the mercy and the grace that you gave us when by your grace we repented and came to you. So we pray, Father, that our hearts would reflect the things that you value. That we would pursue the things that you would have us pursue. That we would love the things that you would have us love that we would hate the things that you hate, that we may grow in the likeness of Christ, including and perhaps especially with his compassion toward lost sinners. Teach us, Lord, to be compassionate for the glory of Christ. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.